This is a free download from Delancey Elam Church. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30am in the Delancey Elam Church building at LeBanc St. Sampson's in the Channel Island of Guernsey. To contact us or find out more information about us, please visit our website at delanceyelam.co.uk. Morning, everybody. You want to take your seats? Goodbye. Wow. He's always like substaging me, that John Cody. Um, okay. I hope everybody's doing well this morning. And ready. This morning, um, I'd like to talk to you about Gideon. Um, and I've actually got seven lessons from Gideon. So hopefully we'll get through this quite quickly. Now, let's uh, give you a little bit of background. So the story of Gideon can be found in Judges 6 and 8, through to 8 even. And Moses had led the people of uh, of Israel out of Egypt. So he took them out, hadn't quite made it to the promised land, and then Joshua took over as the next leader of the Israelites. And Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land, And then they went through a period where they did lots of battles. Joshua won quite a lot of them. I think there was only one he didn't win. I'm trying to remember now. And then the Israelites settled throughout Israel into the different tribes. And each region, each tribe had its own region. And they began to settle throughout the land. And everything was going good. Joshua's led them into victory. And now they're settling. But then Joshua dies And then Judges 2, verse 10, says this. It says, After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord or knew what he had done for Israel. I just thought, actually, while uh, we were doing that, I thought, it sounds a little like the current generation. We have a generation that is rising that doesn't actually know what God is doing for them. And more and more, there is a... um, a plan of the enemy to stop young people and children knowing what God is doing. And I thank, you know, particularly, I do thank for the work of Pace, and I think Elisa, I'm just going to give them a plug, actually, um, and, and the work they do in schools, because actually they're on the front line of what God needs to do. He needs to teach a generation about what he's done in the past so that they can understand that he won't let them down in the future. And so there's a whole thing about, actually, it's really important for us to be praying for those that look after young people, and I say that because I like, you know, children, me, you know, um, but also those that are in schools, teachers, uh, pace, anybody that's working with young people and teaching them about what God has done in the past because the enemy doesn't like that. Um, And then for approximately the next 350 years after this point, judges begin to rule over Israel. So um, I'm going to go, when I was working for Pace, I did this thing called uh, Bible Explorer. And there was a way that they taught it was it was judges on a bicycle. Because it says that judges went through a bit of a cycle of doing the same things for for that 350 years. And so what would happen is Israel would turn their back on God, things would go wrong, um, um, a mighty enemy would come in 
and take over Israel. And then Israel will cry out to God after some time and say, oh, look, it's all gone wrong. It's all gone pear-shaped. Woe is us. And then God would send a judge. The judge would sort everything out. And then Israel would worship God once again. And then they would start once again turning their back on God. Things would go wrong. They'd all cry out to God. God would send another judge. And this went on for 350 years. You'd think they would have learnt it after a while. Um, During this period, there was actually 15 different judges. um, And Gideon actually was the fifth judge to rule over Israel. And so that's who we're going to be looking at. And he ruled over Israel for 40 years. But I'm going to try and sum that 40 years into a very short space. Um, But let's look at some, some things that have happened. So as we open, if you want to open your Bibles to Judges 6, you might want to keep your finger in Judges 6. What I'm going to do is I'm going to try and tell the whole story of the main story of Gideon that's recorded, but I'm not going to read it all out because that would take me a long time and also I would get very confused by the words. As you all know, I have issues with some words occasionally when I'm reading. But... And what I'm going to do is I'm going to slightly paraphrase it and I'm going to slightly tell it my way just to kind of speed it up and to help us get it. But then I'm going to keep coming back to scriptures to demonstrate what I'm talking about is there. Um, Because I think that's always important. So Judges 6 verse 1. We'll look at that first. It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. So, just before Judges 6, in Judges 5, we actually read that everything's going okay. Um, Israel's just coming off a time of relative ease. Things have gone really well for them. Um, The bills are all paid up. The kids are behaving. Um, Business is good. Everything is coming up roses for Israel. Um, And it tends to be in times like that, we tend to forget God. It's often when things are going well, we actually think we're good enough to run our own lives. And we start taking back control from God and saying, well, it's okay. I can do it my way, God, because I don't need you. Everything's going swimmingly. Everything's going perfectly. So I'll do this the way that I think's right, instead of what's the way God wants for our lives. And Israel forgot God. They became self-sufficient. They thought they could do it all in their own power and all the strength. They didn't need God anymore. So the Lord shook things up by sending the Midianites against them. Uh, And the the reason he did that was to show them how hard life can be without him. And what you need to know about the Midianites, they were a a nomadic people. And so what they would do is, um, they were extremely powerful. And what they would do is every year around harvest time, they would come and oppress the people of Israel. Verse 5 talks about that they would come like locusts ravaging the land. And what they couldn't carry with them, they would burn behind. So they were leaving the Israelites in a mess. Every harvest, coming down, stealing what they could take, and everything else, they would burn. And the Bible records that so many of the Israelites were scared, they would go off to caves and strongholds uh, in fearing of the lives. And this went on for seven whole years. And so for that seven year whole years, I, I want you to think, every harvest time, the people are sat there going, well, the Midianites are about to come, and we're about to steal all our stuff. And not once during this time did they actually think about doing anything. They just sort of sat there waiting. Oh, well, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. But yeah, after seven years, they decide to suddenly cry out to God for help. Why did it take them seven years to cry out to God for help? I don't know. But I think it's because they're a lot like us. We try everything humanly possible. We try every of our own resources before we turn to heaven's resources. 
We try doing everything under our own power before actually realising we need God to turn up and to move and to do only what he can do before... Um, uh, well, so we try that thing before actually turning to, back to God. And God is desperately waiting to help people out. But here we have the Israelites just saying, listen, I'm not going to turn... I'm not gonna, we're not going to do anything about it. We're just going to sit on our hands... And I think God was just desperately waiting for seven years for them to turn and back to him. So I think, you see, we need to realise that instead of holding out on our own and thinking that we can handle it, we need to learn this, that every experience in life is a test. And every trial in the life of God's people is tailored to draw people closer to God. God wanted a deeper relationship with the people of Israel. They were his chosen people. He was desperately wanting a relationship with them, but yet they kept turning their back on what God wanted for them. They kept turning away and thinking they could do it in their own power and their own ability. So let's begin the story. So here's the scene. We've got um, Gideon. He is out and he is actually threshing some wheat on a wine press. Um, now that seems a little odd. I did think that. I was like, why did he was he threshing wheat on a wine press of all things? Um, it was probably a sort of a table type, not a table, but like a raised bit of flooring where they did the wine pressing. Um, and so he was, according to the Bible, threshing wheat. But I do find that odd, and I think perhaps there's more in that. Um, and it'll probably take a theologian or something to explain that one to me. Um, but then we have an angel appears under an oak tree. So this angel appears before Gideon and says, calls Gideon a mighty warrior, and that the Lord and tells Gideon that the Lord is with him. And Gideon questions the angel and says, "Well, if the Lord is with me, why are we going through all these circumstances?" I know that for me sounds definitely like me. Sometimes when things go wrong, the first thing I do is I turn to God, well, why am I going through this, God? Um, And Gideon turns and says, why am I going through this? Why has this happened to us? And the angel tells Gideon that that Gideon is going to deliver Israel from the Midianites. Now, Gideon's response was, well, God, listen, it can't be me. You see, here's Israel, and well, in Israel, this is the smallest this is the smallest tribe. and Well, I'm from that tribe. And you see, in that tribe, there's all these different families. Well, I'm from the smallest family of all those families. And you see, in my family, there's all my brothers and my sisters. And, and well, I'm the smallest in that family. I'm the youngest one. You know, it's, it's never going to work out. I'm never going to be the one. But God promises Gideon that he will deliver them. And, well, so Gideon looks at this angel And then he decides what he needs to do is he needs to go and prepare him a meal. So he tells the angel to wait a little while and Gideon runs off and cooks a full meal and then comes back as an offering to the Lord and the Lord responds with fire in that situation. And then Gideon realises that he's been speaking to God face to face. And Gideon then goes on to build two altars in an offering and as worship to God. So we're going to pick the rest of that up in a bit but I want to start with these points. So let's look at Judges 6, verse 12 in your Bibles. And it says, Judges 6, 12, When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And I think the first lesson we can learn from Gideon is that Gideon needed a change of identity. And I think sometimes the church and people, we can have the wrong identity about ourselves. 
We can see ourselves as weak and as useless and as, as mere mortals. But what we forget is that we've got a massive God on our side. We've got a powerful God on side. We might have the opinion of ourselves, well, I'm just a small person, an ordinary person from the land of Guernsey. I can't do anything. I'm not powerful enough. I'm not strong enough. But yet we've got the biggest God we can ever imagine on our side. And he is fighting our corner constantly. And he wants you to know that you are a mighty warrior. He's stood right behind us. And he's, we've got that force behind us. And I remember when I was a kid, um, we lived on an estate, uh, uh, in a shop. It wasn't a sweet shop, it was a corner shop. We sold all sorts of things. I say that because there's lots of arguments about this um, amongst people that have heard stories and they think for some reason I lived in a sweet shop because I used to tell people I stole sweets, which I did, uh, from my, uh, my mum and dad's shop. And they thought for some reason it was a sweet shop, but it was a corner shop. And near our house was a park. And where we were situated was on the corner of three big estates. We had a council estate, we had a slightly wealthy estate, and we had an Asian estate. So there was three estates, and our shop was the corner of all three of these estates. And as you can imagine, things between these estates were quite interesting. But overall, we were there to sort of... The aim of the shop actually was there to sort of be a piece in the, in the situation. And... Um, well, our family, we had a park nearby. And we used to go down and play in this park. But there was a rival family from the, from the poorer council estate. And, well, they didn't like us. Uh, there was, for every one of my, my two sisters and me, there was an equal one of the same age in their family. But they were the bullies. They were the ones everybody was scared of. So we, one day, me and my sisters, we decided we were going down to the park to play. So we headed off down, to, down the road to the park. And we got there, and this other family were there. And they said to us, you're not playing on our park. And us being us, we were like, yeah, they're a bit bigger than us, they're a bit stronger than us, there's no way we can do this. So we head home. Tail between our legs, there's no way we're playing on the park. Now, what we didn't know is that afternoon, our cousins were coming round to play. And the thing about my cousins is I'm the youngest in my family, I'm the smallest one in my family in my generation, and all my cousins are all older than me. And we have a big cousin, she's called Sarah, she's, you know, older than me. And, well, she was coming, and so we came up with a plan. We were going to take them to the park. <laughs> so we took our big cousin, Sarah, and, and we all headed down to the park, and, well, the other family saw Sarah and decided to run. And we knew that we could now play on the park because we had someone bigger and better on our side. And I think it's a perfect example of actually understanding our identity and understanding we've got somebody bigger, we've got somebody stronger on our side. So it doesn't matter how small, how weak, how inferior you feel, God wants you to know that he is on your side. You are a mighty warrior because with you and him, you always make a majority. You always make a majority, no matter how the situation seems, no how difficult it may be, you and God make a majority. I, I remember my dad once, for some reason we were being silly, and you know, you and, he said to me, you and whose army? And I said, God's. And he was like, oh, yeah, you'll always win. But, you know, it's that kind of, uh, me and God together, when we power of God 
on our side. We are mighty warriors. Gideon was a mighty warrior. You are a mighty warrior, no matter what you face. I think one of the biggest problems in our church today is we see ourselves as weak. We see ourselves, our message almost watered down. But we have the best message we can ever bring to the world. We are the most powerful people we can ever meet. It doesn't matter what somebody else thinks about us. The message and the thing that we have on our side is God and that is bigger than anything else. We need to know that he is powerful. Romans 8, 31 says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? I think if we truly understood that, we would be powerful people. If we truly understood that God was on our side when we go out talking to others about the lost, we would, uh, we would be completely different. And I'm not saying that like I'm any better than any of you. I'm saying that for myself. I need to know that God is on my side when I go and talk to people about him. I need to understand that he's with me every moment and that he is on my side. No matter the circumstance of life I face, he is fighting my battle for me. We need to see ourselves as a mighty warrior. When the angel told Gideon he was a mighty warrior, he was declaring spiritual things over his life that couldn't be seen in the visible, but were seen in the spiritual. God knew that Gideon was a mighty warrior. God knew that Gideon was going to deliver the Israelites. Gideon couldn't yet see it, and couldn't yet believe it. But when God spoke it over him, it came into reality. It came into existence. And we need to start listening to God for our identity. We need to start listening to what God's saying over our lives, of who we are in him. I believe God isn't looking for superheroes. He's looking for ordinary men and women, soldiers who will stand up to the enemy. Men and women who will get on their knees and pray. I believe more and more the importance of prayer and seeking God as, as, as individuals and as part of a church, the power that is released when we do that. Who seek God with all their heart. Men and women who will trust in God no matter their earthly circumstances. Who lean on him rather than their own understanding. It's time to stop seeing ourselves through the eyes of the world and instead see it through the eyes of heaven. We need to be less concerned about how other people see us, and more concerned how God sees us. In Christ, it says that each of us is a new man. Ephesians 4 verse 24 says, And put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. Viewing ourselves like this will inevitably change how we live. So this morning, if you feel like Gideon, if you feel weak, if you feel like you've just got nothing left to give, ask God to give you a true revelation of your identity, of the person that he's called you to be. Maybe you feel like you're older and you've got nothing left. Do you know what? I think God's not finished with you yet. I really feel like God wants some people to know that he's not finished with you yet. There's things that you haven't seen yet. And he's calling into existence over your life. He hasn't finished with you yet. You may feel like that, but it's not the case. The plans he's got for your life are amazing, incredible. The best plans we could ever imagine. 
And he wants to use you to, to advance his kingdom. Each one of us is a soldier in his army and it's our time to stand up and say, listen, with God on my side, I am a mighty warrior. The second thing that Gideon did, second lesson, was Gideon responded to God and then God turned up. So if you want to just turn Judges 6, 17 and we're going to read through to 24. Gideon replied, If now I have found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away till I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat and from an ephah of flour, he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, in a pot he brought it out he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to them, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. The angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire fired from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And then the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the, seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, for you are not going to die. So Gideon built an offering, to, an altar to the Lord, and there, and there, oh, sorry. And so Gideon built an altar to the Lord, and there called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, Ophrah stands of the Aborazites. I'll make that word up at the end. If you say it like you mean it, nobody can deny that that's how it's said. Okay. Um, so that was that section. I, I Just when I was reading that, I just thought how funny it was that Gideon makes this meal. You know, he goes and cooks some meat and some bread and some gravy and takes it to this angel and then just like, just pour it on the floor. I think that's kind of funny because if I did that to Joe, when after she made me dinner, I don't think I would be in a good position. Um, <laughs> But, and I, the other thing that I just found interesting, just as we were reading it, it's interesting, was it sounds very similar to another story from the Bible of when Elijah calls down fire from heaven and you got the offering with the meat and the water, uh, and the pour the water over. And I was thinking, it doesn't make sense that fire came and it poured the gravy over the top of it or the broth. And I just thought, maybe there's something there as well that, about Elijah and the fire. But, moving on. Uh, Gideon tried to hold up the angel and delay him. And despite his motives, God accepts the sacrifice with a miracle. And sometimes I believe God is just waiting for us to respond. We can be trapped in circumstances of life. And we can be in circumstances and situations where everything seems like it's falling apart. And God is just desperately waiting for us to respond to him. He's there by our side. He's there waiting for us. It might not always be in the way we expect him to turn up when he does come, but he's always there waiting for us. He's always on our side, uh, assisting us. Isaiah 30 and 18 from the message says this, but God's not finished. He's waiting around to be gracious to you. He's gathered strength to show you mercy to you. God takes the time to do everything right. Everything. Those who wait around for him are the lucky ones. When we're going through circumstances and tough situations, in fact, at any time, 
I believe it's important that we allow God to move in our life. We create room for him to move. That might come through things like discipline in times of uh, personal times with him. But also, more importantly, when we're going through circumstances and situations, when things get tough, that we create God, room for God to move in mighty and powerful ways. We don't always try and solve things by our own ways, by our own methods, but instead we give it over to God and say, God, listen, this is your problem. This is our problem. Come and help me deal with it. Give me wisdom of how to approach it. Give me strength to, to re- make each step forward. Give me, give me guidance of what I should do today. And then when we do that, God turns up. God does amazing things. Gideon desperately needed a personal encounter from God. And God met him right where he was, giving him a sense of peace and a sense of purpose by his promised presence. And it was said upon Napoleon's soldiers that when Napoleon takes our hand and looks at us, we feel like conquerors. There's something that changes inside of us when we start listening to God's voice and we start to look upon his face. Suddenly, our priorities become minimal and his priorities become the most important thing on the earth. And we realise that nothing else matters. I've had many occasions in my life when things have gone wrong Situations have seemed terrible. And I've got down on my knees and I've just looked at God and said, God, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And as I've done that, something inside of me has changed. A hope that's never been there before has just sparked. Strength that I could never imagine has risen up. And he's always shown himself as able. I just think of this time when I, uh, when I was here last time and I left and went back to England and I went through a situation where my bank account went seriously wrong. Um, I couldn't afford a thing. Um, I didn't have a job, and any job. For some reason, I just couldn't get jobs. I was struggling. I just everything went wrong. And I remember one day, I just moved into a rented house and I hadn't quite worked out that I was in that much trouble and basically I got one day a letter from the bank saying you owe us a lot of money and through one thing or another them not getting bank statements and all these kind of things this thing had happened and I got myself into this mess and I remember sitting crying my eyes out before God saying God listen I can't do this anymore I can't work out a way to manage myself out of this situation and sort my da- this, this situation out. And I, as I did that, something rose in me that said, listen, I'm on your side. We'll get through this together. Gradually, one thing after another sorted itself out. One thing after another, God worked his miracles. And things sorted itself out. But all the way through this situation, I had this moment, this thing with God that said, listen, I am completely on your side. I am in control. Don't worry. Don't fear, because I am with you. 
And I created that room for God to move in that situation. And he did. And the third thing was that Gideon dealt with things. So uh, Judges 6, 25-26 says, They answered, We'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment to each of them. And, uh, sorry, that's not the wrong way around. Judges 6. Oh, that's Judges 8, that's why. Um, 25. Uh, this page. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven-year-old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole neck by side it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height, using the wood of an Asherah pole that you cut down, offering offer the second bull as a burnt offering. You know, sometimes there's things in our lives that God challenges us with that prevent God fully blessing us. There's things we need to repent for. Bad habits, hidden sins. Gideon had to deal with the altar to the false god that was built. And if you actually um, look a bit further and read about it, he got into a lot of trouble from this because it was his father's. It was his father's altar, and um, he needed to deal with that altar. He needed to get rid of the wrong things that were that were in his life. He needed to deal with that sin. Um, he needed to put his own house in order before he could, God could use him mightily. And I think there's an important thing. We, we often use the word holiness and, and, and is often now seen as a bad thing amongst church. But I believe God is calling for a holy people where we deal with things that are wrong in our lives, where we sort our own homes out, our own lives out, and our own things out, and we deal with the things that God is challenging us about. There is no shortcuts in the kingdom of heaven. We need to deal with the things that God is challenging us about. So is there anything that you are holding on to? Any sins that we're holding on to? We need to let them down. We need to knock down our personal idols and get rid of them. We need to confess our sin and deal with it and return to full obedience to God. And will it stir trouble up? Yes, of course it will. We're doing stuff that the enemy hates us doing. But when we do that, God will honour those who honour him. And it happened for Gideon. I remember being in a situation um, when I was younger and I did something wrong. I was involved in church and um, I messed up. I sinned. As we all do. And I was about to take a load of young people while being on, going on a trip to Pensacola and I went with them and Right there, God challenged me about the things that were in my life, the sins that were in my life, the wrong things, the unforgiveness, the hatred, my own lack of forgiving myself for things. I had built false altars in my own life. And as soon as I repented, as soon as I said, God, look, I'm sorry I've done that, as soon as I got on my knees and I did it, I promised, I got down on my knees and I said, God, listen, I am sorry. I wept before God and said, God, I repent of that. I repent of my unforgiveness. Suddenly something happened. God's presence came down and he touched me with a fire like never before. When we decide and we give up things, when we, we lay things down at the feet of Jesus and repent for things that we've been holding, unforgiveness is one of the biggest we hold on to. Suddenly, God comes and he touches us with fire and it's like never before. 
And I believe God is calling us to be a holy people, set apart. And when we do that, when we lay them at the foot of the cross, he will turn up in all his power and all his glory and he will set us on fire like never before. So let's move on with the story. Gideon's now in charge and he summons his army together and um, Gideon is a little bit unsure. He's actually doubting. He's like, what is going on here? Um, And so he decides to put God to the test a little bit. So this is a well-known story. The first thing he does, he lays out a fleece in the moor, on, on the threshing floor, and he says, listen, God, um, if in the morning all the ground is dry, but the fleece is wet, then I'll know that you're, what you're saying will save Israel. So he comes out in the morning, and all the ground is dry, he wrings out the fleece, and he gets a bucket of water from it, and he's like, okay, that's not the result I was quite expecting, I was hoping to get away with this one, but okay. Um, I tell you what, God, I hope it won't make you angry, but this time, let's just try this one more time, just to see, definitely sure that you're right. Um, this time, I'll lay the fleece out on the threshing floor, and if the fleece is dry, but the rest of the ground is wet, then I will know that definitely you are going to deliver Israel. So in the morning he wakes up, he goes outside and he steps outside and the ground is uh, wet, dry, no, dry, wet, that's the one. And he looks at the fleece, touches the fleece and the fleece is absolutely dry. And he's like, oh, that's it. So now Gideon finally understands God wants to deliver Israel completely. So Gideon pulls the armies together and he's got 32,000 men, the Bible says. And God looks down at Gideon and he's like, Gideon, listen, if I give you this victory with that many men, Israel's never going to realise that actually it was wrong and that I've won this battle. It'll think it's done its own power, so you've got too many men. And Gideon's like, okay, um, I wasn't quite sure when you gave me 32,000, but okay. So he says, anybody who's scared, you can go, leave, please, you know, go back to your home, enjoy. So 22,000 leave, leaves in 10,000 men. Um, at this point, God once again looks down and he's like, no, still not, still too many people. So um, he tells Gideon, ah, I think what we need to do is take your men down to the riverside and um, when they drink, Um, I want you to watch how they drink. And those that lap up the water like dogs separate from those who kneel down to drink. And when he separated them, there were 300 men who lapped the water up like dogs. And God told Gideon to keep these. And Gideon is now ready to face the 135,000 Midianite army with just 300 men. So I'm going to stop there again and come back. So point four is Gideon was obedient. Despite testing God, which he seems to get away with, which I think is quite a bold thing, he once he managed to get it in his brain that God was going to win this battle and God was going to use him to win this battle, he obeyed God no matter even though it seemed crazy. He went from an army that was outnumbered by one to four to 300 men and I'm sure that took a lot of faith on Gideon's behalf to turn around and say listen I'm going to obey God no matter how the situation seems no matter how difficult it may be I'm going to choose to obey God 
beyond the facts of the situation. I'm quite sure if I was in Gideon's situation from the moment out when God told me to get rid of the men, I'd be like, listen God, this is it. I can't do this. This is a bit difficult. Because it's a challenge. It was a challenge for Gideon to go from that many people down to 300. But yet, God is asking for us to be obedient. Obedient to his will. And Gideon would put all down his own plans, his own ideas, his own things, and said, listen, I'll follow you, whatever. You've told me that you're going to do this, so I'm going to trust. And it may seem difficult, it may seem tough, but I'm going to follow you and jump in wholeheartedly with both feet. I'm going to go for it. No matter how it seems by earthly standards, I'm going to follow your plans instead of my plans. Acts 9.29 said, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. I think so often we're afraid of doing what God says because it may make us seem foolish. But if it's God's will and God's desire, it's time to lay down those plans. It's time to lay down those own ideas and follow his God, follow God wholeheartedly. Don't hold back. Be like Gideon and be obedient to what God is asking us to do. Number five is Gideon's men were vigilant. So let's look at Judges 7, 5 to 6. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap up the water with their tongues as, dog, as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands lapping like dogs and the rest got down on their knees to drink. So to understand this, I think you kind of need some sort of explanation because when I think of a dog lapping, I think of a dog lapping like, you know, like a bowl like that, but like leaning over the bowl. But what they would actually have done would have picked the water up with the right hand. So... Uh, the soldiers most likely would have had a shield on the left hand, on the left arm, a sword or a spear on the right hand. And so then when, if we imagine that this is the edge of the river, here we go, nice river here, and we're at the river, um, it, there would be two options. I could put down my shield and I could put down my sword or my spear and I could lean over the edge and put my head in to get the water. That was the first option. Or the second option, I can keep my spear, uh, my, my shield on one arm, put down my, sh- my spear or my sword, and I can pick up the water in my hand and lap it like a dog. There we go. Being in church, always good. Uh, lapped it like a dog, but all the time their eyes are up, not face down in the river. And the, this test focused on one single characteristic, and that was vigilance. And I believe Gideon's men were vigilant. And it's an important character to have in our life. You see, the enemy's out to steal, kill and destroy. That's his purpose, his his plan. He wants to get rid of anything to do with God in our lives. And when we're busy, it's easy for us to just bury our head in, in the circumstances of life, in daily living. And to be absorbed in all the practical needs of things that go on that confront us every day. And we forget that we're in a spiritual conflict day in, day out. 
with the unforeseen, with the unseen forces of darkness, who are constantly out, going out of the way to catch us unawares. And I believe it is more important than ever before for us to be vigilant to what the enemy wants to do. And you see, part of doing this is, is that we have to be disciplined. Being vigilant is about having, taking time out and being disciplined in our life's in choices. Watching the things that we watch and the things that we put around us. And I'm not saying that we should be completely separated from the world and live in our own little bubbles, but we need to be vigilant to the things that are going on around us, to circumstances and situations, and making sure that what we're doing is we're protecting our own lives and protecting our own faith. If we ignore a warning from God, we become vulnerable to subtle and unpredictable assaults from Satan. And by our own power, by our own strength, we're actually not strong enough to defeat what Satan plans for our lives. But when we, we bring God into that situation, he's always big enough. He can defeat anything. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. He is desperate to catch us out, to ruin what the things that he wants to do, that God wants to do in our lives. Don't let him be vigilant to the circumstances of life. Be vigilant every single day. It demands personal discipline. And it goes beyond our normal concepts of Christian conduct and morality to have unceasing vigilance. But God wants us to be vigilant. Sorry, I've just kind of lost my point. I've kind of gone way somewhere. Okay, there we go. So, um, be vigilant. Okay, yes, we've done that one. Okay, sorry. So the next thing that happens in the story, we'll pick up by the story. Here we go. Yes, we're getting to the good bits. Okay, God tells Gideon to sneak down to the Midianite camp. So off Gideon goes, he goes down. And when Gideon arrives, he overhears a man telling his friend about a dream where the whole Midianite is destroyed by a loaf of barley bread that came rolling into the tents. I just love some of the stories in the Bible. You read them and you know them, but there's certain bits when you read it and then you're like... But yeah, there's a loaf of barley bread that rolls into the camp and destroys the tent. And um, the friend interprets the dream that Gideon is going to destroy the Midianites. And Gideon sat there, let's overhearing, and he's like, woohoo, I'm going to win. Um, I'm sure there was a moment of revelation right there where he suddenly realised God was on his side. He, despite God promising it and all this, and the, the fleeces, I'm sure there was something deep inside of him. And suddenly he begins to worship. And so Gideon then goes on to take his 300 men into battle. And instead of arming them with the shield and the, and the spear, he arms them all with um, torches and trumpets. And he instructs them to all create down to the Midianite camp and surround it. And when he gives his sign for... Um, they should all break the jars which have got torches inside of them. So they covered the torch with a clay jar. 
so that it was hidden and dark, um, but the light was on the inside. And then, so Gideon, when Gideon gives the sign to all, break the jars, the light shines, and then for them all to blow their trumpets and to shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon's men sneak down, and when the time comes, Gideon's like, yay, go for it. Um, they all break the jars, the light starts shining, they all start blowing the trumpets and uh, shouting, and all of a sudden, the Midianites are all so scared, they all run out of the tents and all start stabbing each other. Um, and they all, and then some of them run away, and the Bible goes on to describe how uh, Gideon sent different tribes to go and kill the, the, the rest of the army that had run away. Let's look at the last two things that I've got for lessons. Six, Gideon worshipped. So Judges 7, verse 15. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israelites and called out, Get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Right there in the middle of the situation. I'm sure it wasn't the obvious place to worship God, but right there in the enemy's camp, he decides to have a praise party. And I can't describe to you quite how important the power of worship in your life is. Um, When things are going tough, particularly when you're in a battle season, worship becomes more important. I remember, and I've told this story before, but I'm just going to recap it. But when I was 18, I had cancer, and, and part of that was going through the treatment. And I remember that there was one thing that I loved to do beyond anything else. Um and I did it very regularly, is every time when I felt rubbish and I was alone in the house, what I would do is I'd go downstairs and I would put on a CD. It was a yellow CD. I'd put it in the drawer, turn the volume up full blast, and I would begin to worship God no matter how I felt, how bad I was feeling sick and all those kind of things, and I would begin to declare the goodness of God. The song I always used to put on was this, is how we overcome. And there's a truth about it. When we begin to worship, when we begin to sacrifice in praise, and we begin to declare how good and how amazing God is, he begins to break through in a situation. And I can't tell you the amount of times that I actually felt better after, after worshipping than I did before even starting. And I would be sort of like, you know, totally ill, and then suddenly I would be full of energy after worship because God came and touched me mightily when I was worshipping him. But what we do when we worship is we, we magnify God. We make him bigger. It's a little bit like having a magnifying glass and looking at a, a little ant, and we see the ant, suddenly it becomes big. When we're looking at God, when we worship him, we create a magnifying glass to look at him in. And we, when we see him, we make him big over the situation. God is already big. But as we begin to magnify him, as we begin to lift him up, he becomes big over our situation. Instead of seeming small in our own mind's eyes, suddenly we realize and something clicks inside of us and says, God, my God is big and he can deliver me through this situation. It's important to remember that God is Lord over all. He's in charge of it all. When we begin to worship, it changes our perspective. Instead of looking at our earthly circumstances as big problems, we begin to see it from heaven's perspective and we begin to see it's just 
something God's going to help us through. I think the power of worship should definitely not be underestimated in our lives. And what we do at home, in our own time, is just as important as what goes on in this building. So I want to encourage you, if you feel like you're going through circumstances, take time out, worship him, lift him up, adore him, tell him how great he is. You might be not the best singer or not be able to do very much, but it doesn't matter. Put on a CD, worship him, adore him, tell him. And as you begin to do that, your, the, your circumstance will seem so much smaller. And my last thing is number seven, God had his victory. So Judges 8, 28. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again during Gideon's lifetime and the land had peace for 40 years. When we look back on this circumstance, everything about it seemed impossible. But yet there's no doubting God had the victory. Gideon was just part of that victory, but God was the one who won the victory. And we all may be going through things. Circumstances may seem difficult. But I want to encourage you to be neither an optimist nor a pessimist, but to be a believer. So what's the difference? Well, we all know what an optimist is. We all know what a pessimist is. An optimist, they see the glass as half full. A pessimist sees it as half empty. And a believer knows... But it's not the matter; it's not the level of the water that matters, but whether water's going in or water's going out. Therefore, it's the capacity of the resource that determines the condition of life circumstance. Let me just explain that. If water's going in more than it's flowing out, the glass is going to fill up. And we've got the greatest resource we can ever imagine in our God. And so no matter the circumstance, it will never be half full because he's constantly pouring into our lives every resource that you could imagine. He's got unlimited resources. His tap will never run dry. And we may feel that our life is half empty, but if he fills us up, it will always be full of filling he will always be filling us up. When we live by faith, we tap into the well of unlimited resources. I believe believing in Jesus isn't a preconditioned mental attitude towards life circumstances, but it is an acknowledgement that the circumstances we are going through are just simply temporal. They're just for a short period, and they're subject to his supernatural power therefore truth overrides facts because facts are always rooted in natural laws of creation where truth is rooted in the transcending power of the spirit which is always accessed through faith this morning I feel like 
it might seem like quite a hard message. But you know, I actually feel like God is saying, listen, hang on. If you put me first and focus on me, everything else will fall into place. Don't get down high, don't get discouraged. I am more powerful and I'm more strong than you can ever imagine and the circumstances of life that you're currently in, the things that are going on in your world, I will have my victory. When I went to the cross, I took every sin, I took every disease, I took everything and I bore it all upon myself so that you can have freedom. And I believe without a shadow of a doubt that God wants you to know that he will have his freedom over your life. That circumstance that you're in, that situation that you're in, it will not hold up against the power of the mighty God. Because when he is on your side, you are a mighty warrior. I feel like God wants some people to know that the circumstance, you're going through things and you've almost felt like that you're at your end of your tether with it all. You feel like giving up, but God wants to tell you to just keep on going. Hand it over to him fully and let him show you that he is God. I'm just going to ask the worship team to come up. He is God. He's God over your situation. He's God over your circumstance. He's God over your disease. He's God over your financial situation. He's God over everything. If we choose and let him into that position. I'm going to pray in a moment, but I'm also, maybe today you need you feel like you need prayer, somebody to pray alongside you. I'm going to ask that maybe a couple of leaders just if you feel like you need prayer this morning, don't hold back. Come and ask God. Come and get God. Take over that situation, that circumstance. Give it to God. And he will have his way in that circumstance. I'm going to pray. Father God, this morning we thank you for the life of Gideon. We thank you for the lessons that we can learn. And I pray for every single one of us this morning, Father God, you would help us be like Gideon. You'd help us lay it all down. You'd help us realise that, God, we're not weak. We're not powerless, but we've got you on our side, that we are mighty warriors called to do amazing things and mighty things for you. And God, I pray that you would begin to change some people's identity of who they believe that they are. And God, we may be going through circumstances which seem beyond our own control, but they may seem bigger than us. And I pray that this morning, Father God, there will be a release of your spirit in this place that will begin to transform our mindset, Father God, to one where we begin to realise and give you space to be God in that circumstance 
And Lord, I pray that you would begin to give us the heaven's mind over that circumstance and we would begin to realise that you will have your victory in that circumstance. It may not always be the way that we want it to happen, but God, Lord, you will have your victory. And God, we lift and thank you that no matter our circumstances, you will always be with us, fighting on our side. You will be with us, no matter what. You give us the strength to overcome. Lord, if there's things in our lives that we need dealing with, I pray that you would challenge us. That you'd reveal them to us. And Lord, this morning you would challenge us to repent for those things. So that we can have more of you in our lives. God, that's our heart's desire. Is that we want to live closer and nearer to you. We want to reveal more of Jesus to a broken world. And God, we, to do that, we need to realise that the things that we're holding on to, our own plans, our own objectives, our own ideas, God, are nothing. But when we pick up your objectives, when we pick up your plans, we can do amazing things. Father God, we thank you for your son and that you sent him to the cross so that we can be free. And I pray that this morning for freedom over everybody here, over those circumstances, over those situations, and over those things. In Jesus' name, amen. to this free download from Delancey Elam Church. For more downloads, information or to contact us, please visit our website at delanceelam.co.uk.